So several years ago, uh, Houston Airport had a customer relations problem. Imagine airports having customer relations problems. Huh? Well, there was a problem here at this Houston Airport. Houston, we have a problem. Passengers were complaining about the wait time at baggage claim. So the higher-ups wanted to respond, and they did so by increasing the number of baggage handlers per shift. And it, it worked in terms of the time. The average wait time fell to just eight minutes. But here's the thing. The complaints persisted. And so the airport bosses, they were just puzzled by this. And they took a hard look at what was actually going on, made a site visit, observed. And so what they discovered was that it took passengers exactly one minute to arrive from the gate to the baggage claim, and then seven more minutes waiting to get their bags which meant that about 90% of the time, passengers stood around waiting for their bags. You know what the bosses did? Instead of reducing the wait times, they moved the arrival gates away from the main terminal and routed the bags to the outermost carousel. Now the passengers had to walk six times longer to get their bags. Complaints dropped to almost zero. <laughs> True story. So, uh, what we learned here is that, you know, we, we can tolerate occupied time. Like walking to baggage claim. Far better than unoccupied time. Such as standing at the baggage carousel. So give me something to do while I wait. And the wait can become endurable. Huh? By the way, that's why they put mirrors next to elevators in some buildings. No kidding. Yeah. The wait becomes endurable. You know, you can, because you just, you can, because, because you can enjoy the mirror. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, waiting on God, um, often feels like unoccupied time. Right? We, 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 we wait, but then we wonder, what's really happening behind the scenes of our lives? Is God actually doing something? See, so, so my waiting implies that God isn't doing something. Maybe I need to rethink that. Maybe I need to think that, that God is up to something, even though I don't exactly know what that is, and I need to change my perspective because, you see, waiting on the Lord is not like waiting for my luggage. And God never underestimates the time it takes to accomplish a goal. He never miscalculates the moment to act. God has never rushed in and said to anyone, I'm so sorry I kept you waiting. <laughs> if, the, if the Lord delays, it's not because he's behind schedule. His plans unfold precisely when they should, at the very moment they should, according to his desires and, yes, decrees from eternity past. And this is why David could say in Psalm 27, 14, 
Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Well, how do we do that? How do we wait well? Well, I want to just take a short time here to explore some verses that will teach us how to do that. If you have your Bibles, would you please meet me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. Today's Scripture teaches us the skill of waiting well. The skill of active waiting. Expectant waiting. Waiting that anticipates the goodness of God. Waiting well. So, so I've tagged our message today, the reward of waiting well. Would you say that with me? The reward of waiting well. One more time. The reward of waiting well. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that is Mary and Joseph, brought him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. Literally, he received him and blessed God, said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting 
for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. So our text here this morning highlights uh, three people groups. Mary and Joseph, Simeon, and Anna. Three, three people groups, three people who, who help us see what waiting well looks like. And I want us to just take a glimpse at their lives and be strengthened by how they waited for the way that we wait. And so here's our big idea. It's this. We will never waste our lives when we actively wait on Christ. We will never waste our lives when we actively wait on Christ. Well, let's meet these three. First, Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph. They, Jesus is born. They present the infant Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. He's about six weeks old here. And, and so the, the Hebrew scriptures, which we saw sections of in our text call for the parents to perform two rituals. First in verse 23, Mary and Joseph offer their firstborn son before the Lord. That's, that's a ritual that dates all the way back to the Exodus when God preserved the lives of Israel's firstborn under Egyptian slavery. He made a claim on them. And Exodus 13.1, Exodus 13.1 says that every firstborn belongs to God. And the parents are to redeem that firstborn with five shekels of silver. That's in Numbers chapter 18, verse 13. And their redemption price, at a month old you shall redeem them, you shall fix at five shekels in silver. So it's a, it's a, what's, what's that about? It's a ritual of remembrance. Here is who you were, here is what God did, and here is who you are. That's what that's about. And then there's a second ritual that Mary and Joseph performed here that is explained in Luke chapter 2. It is the purification offering to ceremonially cleanse the mother of the child. And again, this tradition goes back to the time of Moses. Leviticus 12 says that a lamb is to be offered. And yet, the text tells us that they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Why? Because that's all they could afford. That's why. Leviticus 12 verse 8 says, and if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. And so we see them attentive to the details of these historical rituals of worship. You notice when I was reading this text here, uh, the phrase is repeated, according to the law, or according to the law of Moses. Look at verse 22, it shows up there and 23, and 24, and 27. I did not read 39, but it's there in 39 as well. When they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. See that? What are we learning here about waiting well? Waiting well happens when we are compliant with the word of God. Compliant with God's word. Uh, uh, even in the routine 
they take the Bible seriously. And, and, and they had to wait six weeks for this routine. Six, six weeks at baggage claim. Hmm? And the ritual itself doesn't take long, as long as for you to pick up your suitcase. Doesn't take that long. But they can't just drive home from the hospital and then come back a month later. You remember the story about how they got to Bethlehem. I mean, they, so they're there. And so they, they're, they're staying there. Uh, fulfilling this ordinary um, routine. Um, maybe even mundane. But necessary act of obedience. Sit in that for just a minute. You know, we often let big ideas and majestic visions of salvation and grand visions of God's work in the world, great dreams for making an impact in the name of Jesus, we, we often let those distract us from taking with gospel seriousness the unglamorous ordinary. We often think that small, mundane, ordinary things we do each and every day are worth nothing before God because they're not worth anything before the gods of this world. And we, we may flirt with greatness, but the fact is for most of us, Christians or non-Christians, ordinary is the divine order of the day. Now, kids, bills, cable, home repair, put gas in the tank, Church attendance, inexpensive pleasures, discount shopping, family reunions. Is that not what we're made of? 10,000 little moments. 10,000 little moments. The transforming work of grace happens in 10,000 little moments. More than it does in two or three life-altering events. But the quality of your life is defined more by the 10,000 little decisions and desires and words and actions you make every day. And if God is not king over those 10,000 moments, then he's not king over you because that's where you live. And it's in these small, seemingly insignificant moments, that's, that's where he's delivering every redemptive promise that he's made to you. Oh. Oh for more of the unglamorous ordinary because those, those are what God values. Well, that's Mary and Joseph. Let's move on. Let's move on quickly, quickly. Mary and Joseph were led by the law of God and then we meet a man by the name of Simeon who is led by the Spirit of God. You see what Luke is doing? He's tying together not only the Word of God, but the Holy Spirit of God. He's making a connection between the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures. Chapter 2, verses 25 and 26 says that Simeon was a righteous man, a devout man, waiting for the consolation of Israel. We don't know much about him. He's, he's kind of a mystery. We don't know his vocation. We don't know his social status. We do know he's righteous. We do know he's devout. And we do know that he is waiting expectantly, hopefully, for the consolation of Israel. What's that? What's that? 
comfort, uh, relief. He's waiting for Israel to be out from beneath Roman domination. He's waiting for the arrival of the Lord's Messiah, the anointed one who will liberate Israel. So Simeon is devout, he's righteous, he's waiting. And the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die until his eyes saw the Messiah. You will see God's anointed deliverer. Just be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Oh, you talk about 10,000 moments of mundane. Simeon goes to the temple every day. And every time he sees a couple, every baby. Is this the one? No. What about this one? No. Well, what about this one? No. Well, okay, what about, what about this one? No. Then he starts collecting Social Security. And, and, and then he needs a cane. And then he needs, and now he needs a walker. And one day the Holy Spirit moves him to go into the temple courts. The temple courts. That's not the church foyer like out here. It's a 17-acre compound. You can get lost there. Think Memorial Stadium. Courts clogged with crowds. Simeon's eyes scan the courtyard. A poor young couple enters with their newborn son. And they, they look no different than any other couple. The Spirit finally speaks. Simeon, Simeon, there, go, 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 go. 10,000 10, times, Simeon asks, is this the one? 10,000 times, no. But on 10,001 time, is this the one? Yes. What? Yes. Go, go. He gasps. <laughs> he intercepts them. On their way to do their rituals, may I hold your baby. And the scripture says that this righteous, devout, old man waiting, waiting, who'd come into the, in the spirit, he'd come in the spirit into the temple, and he took him up. Verse 28, he took, literally he received him. Simeon has been called the, the God receiver, the, God, the bearer of Christ. Simeon's weight has not been wasted. No. No. Now this little boy with poor parents and Galilean accents, this little boy who looks so ordinary, he is the Lord's Messiah. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in this little bundle of life. And, and in verses 29 to 32, we learn that Simeon can sing. He sings. The first words are, God, now I can die. Now, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, God, you've kept your promise like a sentinel on watch through the night as the sun rises in the east. He knows his work is over. He knows his and, he, and so he goes to his commanding officer asking permission to be relieved of duty. He can return to his barracks and sleep. He's ready. This man is ready to leave this life and step into the presence of God. There's no fear in Simeon's heart about seeing God because he knows that God has fulfilled 
his purpose and his plans in Simeon's heart and in Simeon's life. And now Simeon can live with God. (laughs) I've seen your salvation. Verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation. What did he see? What did he see? Did he see a set of principles? Did he see a series of lessons? Did he see a religious curriculum? No, because salvation is a savior. Salvation is what someone does to rescue us. And so, uh, in his song here, this beautiful, beautiful word regarding salvation in the Greek Old Testament, originally the Old Testament, came to us by way of the Hebrew. But because of Alexander the Great, the Old Testament was eventually translated into the Greek. And the word salvation in Greek is translated peace offering. I have seen your peace offering, Simeon says. You have prepared in the presence of your people, verse 31. So so Simeon will never see Jesus walk on water. He will never hear Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. He will not witness Jesus raising Lazarus, but he knows who this child is. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So in the most Jewish place of Israel, Simeon prophesies that Jesus is Lord of the nations. So Jesus is not just light for one people, but all rich, poor, young, old, Hebrew, Gentile. He didn't come for one ethnic group. He came for every ethnic group. He came for every life situation. If you're lonely, rejected, victim, perpetrator, forgotten, discouraged, depressed, failure, success, tangled in a sin struggle. Jesus is for you. Do you believe this? He's light. He's glory. He's hope. No no wonder Mary and Joseph marveled I mean, it's like every day they're learning more about their son. And then Simeon leans in, verse 34. He blesses them and says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. In other words, Jesus will be a polarizing person. There's no neutrality when it comes to Christ. Jesus reveals the nature of your heart. No one can walk away from Jesus unaffected. And in a university community like ours, it's easy to think of Jesus as a gifted intellect or philosopher or teacher or sage. But is that what he said about himself? The answer is no. He said, on judgment day, whether you rise or fall depends on whether you know and love me. He said, if your, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He said, eat my body, drink my life. Who says that? Who says that? The Gospels do not pro- portray Jesus as someone who can help you reach your potential. Rather, the Gospel says, here is your king. And now the question, what is Jesus to you? What is Jesus to you? What, not, not who is he, not who is he. 
What is he to you? There's no waiting, there's no waiting here, just a probing heart question. Is he life or death? Is he heaven or hell? Is he joy or sorrow? Is he guilt or forgiveness? Is he eternal life or eternal separation? What is Jesus to you? What is Jesus to you? That's what Simon is getting at. And what Jesus gets at later is when he says in Matthew 10, 34, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then Simeon spoke grave words to Mary, verse 35, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary, you will love this boy more deeply than you love any human being on earth. And in about 30 years, you will stand helplessly as a grief-stricken mother to a gruesome crucifixion. And in that place of naked misery, you will watch your son die the most terrible death. You will see the sun go dark. You will feel the earth shake. And a sword will pierce your heart. Jesus can only be light by entering darkness. And he can only save sinners by bearing wrath. And he can only be glorious with the glory of God's self-giving love. And that's what Simeon was prophesying here. And his, his mission was to remind Mary of the identity of her son. And, and I mean, as if just to interrupt this moment of heaviness, Anna shows up. You know, Anna appears. And she's, she's like, she's a party waiting to happen. Oh my goodness. Luke introduces us to a holy prophetess, Anna. Verse 30, 36 tells us that, that uh, she is uh, uh, akin to Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. So the, what's that? Those are investigative details. But she's a real person. She's a real person. And Anna serves to substantiate this exchange between Simeon and the Holy Family. So she's a witness. She's a witness. Uh, she'd once been married. She'd been married for seven years. Then her husband died. And, and verse 37 says, she's 84 years old. So she did not remarry. She elected to remain single, focused, and celibate for her Lord. And so she dedicated herself to, to worship and fasting and prayer. Day and night, she longed for Israel's redemption. And by her fasting, Anna showed how hungry her soul was for Israel's Messiah. Sin and misery are hunger pangs. Death starves us. Oh, how long, Lord. And finally, God rewards her. Anna sees the holy child. And then just words of gratitude spill out of her mouth. I mean, she had divine insight that was hidden from the crowds. And she starts telling everyone, she's 84 years old, I've seen the Lord's Messiah. I've seen Israel's redemption. I've seen Israel's redemption. She just can't stop talking. She's festive. She's celebrative. Uh, Malachi 3.1, which was in our call to worship, is often associated with Luke's passage here, Malachi 3.1. The Lord whom you seek will come suddenly in his temple. Well, Anna says, he's here. He's here. If you're looking for redemption, look no further. Anyone here need redemption? 
Anyone here need forgiveness? Anyone here need a fresh start? A clean conscience? Look no further. He's here. And you will find no further either. I'm mindful of C.S. Lewis's fourth volume, The Silver Chair. A girl named Jill is in the woods and she's very thirsty. Her, her throat is like a cotton mouth parched and she sees a stream and she also sees Aslan, the mighty lion. She pauses. Aslan speaks. Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst. Then drink. But Jill is nervous. She says, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Well, will, will you promise not to, to, to do, do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that, that, that without noticing it, she had she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms. And Aslan wasn't boasting when he said this, and he wasn't apologizing either, and he wasn't angry. He just said it. It is what it is. Well, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, sir, said Jill, coming another step closer. Well, I suppose I'm going to just go and look for another stream then. And Aslan said, there is no other stream. Beloved church, there is no other stream. There is no other stream. Effective, active, hopeful waiting draws its source from just one stream. And it does not require the life you wish you had. It only requires cooperation with the life God has given. And so Luke paints this true Christmas portrait. A young married couple, an old man, an unmarried woman advanced in years... And get this, what Mary and Joseph are seeing in Simeon and Anna, they're just seeing what life looks like when you wait expectantly on the Lord. Simeon and Anna, they're not cynical. They're not jaded by life's hardships or disappointments. God, we trust you with this. We trust you with our lives. They're steadfast. And they are what we in our COVID world need to see. For they believe that the best is yet to come. And why? Because they orbit around the baby. This remarkable baby. You know, these verses have been titled the presentation of Jesus at the temple. But maybe it's the other way around. Perhaps Jesus is presenting them. Jesus who will later claim to be the temple of the living God. The meeting place between God and humanity. The peace offering for them and for us. 
Oh, you never waste your worship when you wait on Jesus. And we gather here every week in worship, in song, in scripture, in community. And we're reminded here that it's not because of righteous things we've done, but it's because of his mercy that we gather, that we serve, that we pray, that we fast. We, we gather because Jesus has and is and will quench our thirst so much so that, that a stream of water flows from our hearts so that we become a source of nourishment to our community and to our family. Our waiting is never a waste when we actively wait for Christ. And so wait. Wait we will. Wait we do. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Wait well for Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then there's Jude 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I'm almost done. But I want to tell you about a cemetery by a church out in the country. I've told you about this cemetery before. There's an old oak tree and by its massive trunk, there's a gravestone with one word that reflects the faith of a saintly grandmother in the, in the lineage of Anna. She lived by grace through faith in the living Christ and his resurrection. The grave marker has but one word. You know what that word is. 